0: Church family, if you would join me by standing and taking your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9 verses 23 through 27 as we give attention to the reading of Holy Scripture as we continue now to worship through the preaching of the Word of God. Luke chapter 9 verse number 23, we pick up in our study through the Gospel according to Luke, and you can follow with me as I begin to read in verse number 23. Hear now the Word of the living God. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me And of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And this morning I'm preaching on this subject, what is real Christianity? And you may be seated. Let us pray together. Father, we do love you and praise you. We thank you for this wonderful privilege to be together on this Lord's Day. We thank you again for the opportunity to engage in corporate worship with the gathered church here on this first day of the week, on the day where we remember the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask now that you would encourage us in the faith, strengthen us, strengthen our resolve, and help us, O God, to be steadfast, immovable in the faith. Persevering to the very end, and let it all be done for your praise and honor and glory. Oh God, we pray this as we often do. As the word is preached today, I pray that you would do a work in the hearts of your people, the church. But we also plead on behalf of the unconverted among us that you would call them to yourself, call them out of darkness into your marvelous light. Give them the gift of faith and repentance, and oh God, we pray that they would leave here today rejoicing in the sweetness of salvation. And we ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. If you've grown up in the South, it may be a shock to you to realize that the world really doesn't know, specifically America, this world that we live in doesn't really know what Christianity actually is. And I say that, although, yes, many of us do understand what Christianity is, and yes, the church in America can certainly define what Christianity truly is. But by and large, what we hear today is we hear a lot of talk about Jesus, but yet very few people know what Christianity really is. And that's especially true in the South. Many people will claim the name of Jesus because they've grown up in this historic cultural Christianity and they think that perhaps going to church on Sunday morning, singing a couple of hymns, knowing a couple of Bible verses that we learned when we were children, so long as we've prayed that prayer at some point in time, then we've got that checkbox and so our ticket is punched to heaven. And that is the predominant view within the South. It is shrinking a bit now, but growing up in the Bible Belt, that is exactly what many people believe that Christianity is. That's why so many people, the statistics tell us this, have grown up in youth groups and churches and have disappeared from the church altogether post-graduation, post-first year of the university. And yet, we need to know what genuine, real Christianity looks like. In recent weeks, we have walked through this passage here in Luke chapter number 9 and previously in chapter 8, and we've looked at really what the definition of the true Christ is, and we've tried to define who is Jesus, thinking in terms of the way that the Bible presents Jesus over against Time Magazine or National Geographic or the History Channel. And so we've sought to define who Jesus actually is. This morning, we need to define the message of Jesus. What is real, genuine Christianity? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And are you a follower of Christ? That is the point of this sermon. That is the main emphasis and thrust of this text that is set before us and open before you and your copy of God's Word. As we look at these words of Jesus, let us give great consideration to what He says. We'll see three specific things. We'll see Christianity described. We'll see warnings from the Savior who speaks this very truth. And then we'll also see a prophetic prophecy that is set before the apostles and before those who are right here in the presence of Jesus' own hearing. And so, Let us give attention now to verse number 23. Christianity is described by Jesus. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, we see in this one little verse, we see really the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. The foundation for what it means to be a follower of Christ. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, this is the foundation for what it means to actually obey Jesus and to call yourself a Christian. We see this in this text. We see really three things. If anyone would come after me, we see this call to self-denial. We see this call to take up a cross And then we see this call to following Jesus. Let's examine those three components one by one. First of all, the call to self-denial. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The word deny here means to refuse or it means to disown or it means to deny. Context will tell you how the word is being employed Obviously, here in this text, we see that Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to deny yourself. You have to deny yourself. Now, that is very difficult in America. We live in, a, in an age, we live in a nation that loves to love self. We live in a nation that loves to enjoy amusements. I mean, if you go to third world countries, and many of us in this room have been over the last decade or so, to Ecuador and to the Andes Mountains where we've planted a church some 11 years ago, or or, or, or it's about 10 or 11 years ago now, I guess. And so many of you have seen what what it looks like in those contexts to drive up and down roads and to go into villages and small towns and see there is no six flags there. There is no Disneyland or Disney World there. We live in a nation that loves self and loves to have fun. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a vacation if you're sitting here saying, okay, here we go for the next 43 and a half minutes, he's going to just shame me for taking that vacation that I just took this summer. That is not the main idea of this passage. Go on a vacation. Enjoy yourself, enjoy your family. That's not sinful. Understand that. There's been some years now, uh, different voices within evangelicalism that have almost made it a shameful thing for you to take a vacation, and that is not what this text is teaching. But genuine, real Christianity in this world that we live in looks very different then what we oftentimes see put on display in terms of what Christianity actually is, in other words, the definition of Christianity over against what we see in this self-loving amusement park world is difficult. We love to be pampered. We have entire business models in our community that are built upon pampering people and massages, and spas, and amusement parks, and movie theaters, and all these things, and we love this. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Well, what it means to deny yourself is that we put Christ first. We put Christ as supreme. That we are not number one, but Christ is number one. And so we will deny pleasure if need be. We will deny advancement in the culture if we, need, if we need to. We will deny personal advancement if we need to, or whatever it might be, in order to actually follow after Christ. In other words, we come to Christ, we follow Him, and we must first begin by denying self, which means you deny sin, which means you deny the love of sin and the love of this self-autonomy that you think that you have, that the devil blinds you with and makes you believe that you're have that you the captain of your own ship. That's not true. That is absolutely not true. And so what it means to be a Christian, first of all, is that you deny yourself. You, you repent of your sin. You turn your back on your own pathway, your own life pursuits, and then you follow after Christ as supreme. What does self-denial look like? I can only give you an example of one historically, of a man by the name of Adoniram Judson and his wife, Anne. He went to Burma when he was 24 years of age. In 1813, he and Anne set sail from the shores of America to go to this land of unreached peoples. He spent 38 years there until his death at 61. Judson's wife, Anne, was 23 when she got onto the ship with him to go over. They had not been married very long. But before they got married, Adoniram Judson wrote a letter to Anne's father. I want you to listen to this letter that this young man wrote to this father asking for permission of marriage. He said in the letter, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. End quote. Now, when I took the Ellises to Salmon Roscoe's to ask for Carrie's hand in marriage, I didn't talk like that. And how many of you in here, when you asked for your wife's hand in marriage, how many of you men spoke like that? Not many of us can raise a hand in this room. Soon after Ann accepted Judson's proposal for marriage, she wrote a personal letter to her friend Lydia. And this is what Ann said. Quote, I feel willing and expect if nothing in providence prevents to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. Anne would give birth to three children. All three died. Anne became so ill at one point that she had to travel back to America to seek medical attention. They did not have air travel at that time. That meant spending long weeks on a ship to sail across the ocean. Judson would not see his first convert for six years. After arriving in this unreached land of unreached peoples, it was very difficult ministry. Judson would... would, uh, devote himself to developing and organizing and translating and putting together the very dictionary for the Burmese language. Judson translated their Bible into the Burmese language. Judson handed out and printed and published some 10,000 gospel tracts and tens of thousands of tracts he would hand out for, for about six years before he would see his first convert. And then finally, people would start responding. Some walked more than two or three months' journey from village to village looking for the man that they called the Jesus Christ man, asking, could could someone point me to the Jesus Christ man who tells of this glorious gospel? And they would finally reach him, and he would share with them the gospel, and he would lead these individuals to Christ. It was a difficult ministry. He was accused of being a spy. He was thrown into prison. His wife would have to care for him while she was pregnant. She would walk with bloody feet to care for him. She would, she would seek to comfort him as he was falsely accused. And yet, he would be released after 17 months. And then 11 months later, Anne died. And then six months later, their daughter died. Now, This is a 24-year-old man and a 23-year-old young lady, newly married, who get on a ship to sail to an unreached people group to give themselves for the glory of King Jesus. And yet, I say, once upon a time, this world was turned upside down by 24-year-olds. And I long for the day when it would happen again. And I long for the day... As as I was praying, even this past week, as Steve Knight was teaching on Wednesday evening, and as he was giving the the the, the recall of his own call to missions for God to raise up men of that caliber out of this very church who would sail and who would go and who would fly and who would travel and who would burn the bridges behind them and who would see that the glory of Christ is of greater value than anything that this world has to offer. That is what I'm praying for. In fact, that's what I've been praying for for the last 13 years since I first stepped foot into this pulpit, is that God would raise up the caliber of men and women like an Adoniram Judson and Ann Judson, who would see Christ far more valuable than anything that this world could ever offer them. May it be so. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Notice this and take up his cross daily. What does it mean to take up a cross? The cross is an instrument, was known in that day as an instrument of suffering and shame. You heard me talk about that recently in a sermon that I preached just a week or so ago as we talked about the Roman crucifixion. The Romans did not invent the crucifixion system, but they did perfect it. It was known in that culture as the infamous stake. It was painful. It was shameful. It was horrific. Oftentimes people would fight with every fiber of their being as they were led near that cross knowing that once they were staked to that cross that that was it. It was a certain death. And so it would be on the side of a road. It would be in a public place. Consider the ignominious death Of Jesus. And yet, Jesus, before going to the cross, says that if you want to follow him, you must deny yourself, and you must take up your cross, and you must follow after Jesus. And what this means is taking up a cross daily means to subject yourself to a life of hardship, to a life of suffering and shame. The reason I started off the way I started off in this sermon today was to help you who have only grown up here in, in America. And when Steve, on Wednesday evening, asked the question, how many of you have never traveled out of the borders of America? Many people raised their hands. And I fear that many of those people that raised their hands have not traveled far beyond the South, maybe not far north of the, the Ohio River. And so all you know about life is right here, and what you need to understand is that over the course of your life, it has been an easy thing in America to be a Christian, and to call yourself a Christian, but the world, the world does not see it that way, and the Christians elsewhere, all around the world, have not experienced that same life that you've experienced. 360 million Christians, or one in seven believers around the world, suffered significant persecution for their faith in the last couple of years. There has been a spike in persecution of Christians and those who would be martyred for their faith around the world over the last four to five years. There's an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians imprisoned in North Korean prison camps right now as I'm preaching this sermon and so for those of you that all you know is the south east corridor of the United States of America and that's all that you know of Christianity you need to think about what it means to follow Jesus worldwide it is not a safe thing to follow Jesus Jesus warned of this in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And the very people that Jesus is speaking to in this text, they would undergo very severe persecution, trials, hardship, rejection, and be martyred for their faith. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia in AD 60. He was stabbed with a large spear. Peter, church history tells us, was crucified upside down for Jesus, for the sake of Jesus, because he said that he wasn't worthy to be crucified upright as Jesus was. John, church history tells us, was boiled in a large basin of boiling oil. That didn't kill him, so they banished him to the island of Patmos. James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, was cast down from the top of the pinnacle of the temple. A hundred feet he fell, smashed the ground with a big thud. They dragged him out of the city gates and clubbed him to death. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, was whipped to death with a whip in Armenia. James the less was crucified in Persia. Simon the zealot was called away from that life of, of nationalism to be a man who would follow in the footsteps of Jesus and deny himself and take up his cross and follow Christ. And according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, he was crucified in AD 74. Andrew was crucified on a cross in Greece. Thomas died in India after being stabbed with a spear. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. And Paul, as you know, was beheaded in the streets of Rome. And I tell you that And you've heard me go through a list like that numerous times over the years. But I want to remind you that to follow in the footsteps of Jesus is more than walking down a church aisle, repeating some prayer, and then saying, I'm a Christian. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By the way, all of these texts that I'm sharing with you and this present text that I'm preaching to you is why I am not post-millennial in my eschatology. And some of you can say ouch, some of you can say amen, but I stand behind what I'm saying because of the reality of the record of the New Testament. When you read the New Testament and you see warning of trial, warning of persecution, warning of tribulation, almost immediately afterwards in the context, you see the hope of glory that is to come. You see the the hope of the appearance of Jesus and His kingdom. You see the the promise that, that King Jesus will return. But what we don't see is that suffer well persevere to the end take up your cross daily all those who shall live godly in christ jesus shall long for the day when it's going to get better and better and better and better until the church rolls out the red carpet for jesus that is not what the text says And we need men with the resolve of a George Whitfield when he would go preach in the open air and stand with thousands and thousands waiting on him in a large field and people would find out where he's going to enter the field and they would go over with dead cats and big buckets of blood and they would throw it upon the preacher as he was going up to preach. Listen to what 1 Peter 4 says. Verse 12, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Notice that? Be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The call of Christianity is to deny yourself and be willing, if it be God's will for you, to suffer, and some to suffer even violently for following after Christ. We see not only this deny yourself and take up your cross, but then specifically, follow me. That's what Jesus said. Now listen to these verses. As we consider what it means to follow after Christ, Christianity, hear me, is far more than a decision at the end of a sermon. It's a life of obedience to Christ. It's a life of total devotion to Christ. It is a life that involves even being willing to suffer for Christ. Matthew 10, 21 and 22, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. John sixteen two. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Acts 5.41 is just an account of the early church. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, this does not sound like prosperity gospel, and it also doesn't sound like post-millennial eschatology. And the reason that I say that is because there is a growing movement of post-millennialism that is very, very in your face and will seek to shame anyone who does not embrace that, that form of post-millennial eschatology. They would say, in all these verses that I've just now quoted, that that's a reference to what's going to happen in A.D. 70. Hear me well. As someone who recognizes church history, A.D. 70, mark it on, on your calendar, was a massively important event. But it is very much very much our duty as students of the Bible to parse out and to rightly divide the Word of God to see that the totality, and I just read to you from a multiplicity of places, and that's not the total exhaustive list of warnings of sufferings, mind you, in the Bible, but I would dare say that if A.D. 70 was it, and all of these warnings of suffering was all leading up to AD 70, and there's nothing else but just the hope of the golden age to come afterwards, then I would say that the great part of the New Testament, you would read it and say, "That that was only a cultural warning for them in that day. And I say, you have to be very, very cautious when you go down that road. Very cautious. Because I don't see that as I read this account of Scripture, I see warning and warning and warning. And yes, sometimes there are, there are cultural warnings that would absolutely be fulfilled in the overthrow of the temple in AD 70. But you need to understand that there is suffering even now, presently. You go over and talk to the 50,000 Christians in the North Korean prison camps and tell them that these warnings weren't really applicable for them. This is not the prosperity message. This is Jesus' message of what genuine Christianity looks like. You need to be willing to be rejected and despised and to suffer pain, to be isolated, and if need be, hear me, to stand all by yourself for Christ. That's why Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Hear me well. When you follow after Jesus, you are going to swim upstream in this culture. Now, Now hear me. We love to be accepted. And this idea of acceptance means that if you drive the right automobile, if you listen to the right music, if you embrace the right politics, then this world will accept you. But when you follow after Jesus, things change. Your appetites change. Your commitments change. Your your, uh, willingness to lay aside your own uh, desires and affections and the things of this world will change. And it, it it will also cause you to to look at the public sphere differently as well, your politics will change. However, it doesn't matter what the world says. It matters what Jesus says. And Jesus, Jesus is king. And he said, if you want to follow after me, you have to deny self, take up a cross, and follow me. Psalms 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what genuine Christianity looks like. Second of all, we see warnings from Jesus. Note these warnings. Verse 24, verse 25, and verse 26, we, th- we see three specific warnings. Warnings for those who might be considering Christ, but yet afraid to follow him warnings for those who have claimed to follow Jesus but in all reality have not truly followed Jesus verse 24 a warning of self preservation for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it the unconverted individual in this world wants two things pleasure And self preservation, flip it. First, self preservation. Second of all, pleasure. Preserve self, first of all, and then get as much pleasure as you can get because he who dies with the most toys wins. That's what the bumper sticker says. And that is the common worldview. It is a counter cultural thing to deny self and take up a cross. And subject yourself to suffering and shame and to follow in the footsteps of the crucified Messiah. But here's the warning if you think that you can save your life, you're going to lose it. If you think that you can preserve yourself, you're going to be exposed in eternity. If you think that you can keep yourself safe by not following Jesus, because you don't want to subject yourself to the mobs of this world, you're going to go to hell forever. The life that you think that you have saved will be the life that you have wasted, and it will be the life of an eternal misery in a place called hell. J.C. Ryle said, "If." If we will not carry the cross, we shall not, or we shall never wear the crown. In other words, we shall never be joint heirs with Christ if we are not willing to carry the cross. Remember the parable of the soils that we looked at and we examined and that we preached through in Luke chapter 8? You remember the the soil that was the rocky soil? Luke 8, 13, and the ones on the the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. Remember that whole parable, and in that specific account, the rocky soil was a reference to the rising sun and the scorching heat that causes that rootless plant to wither and die. And so it is with so many people who have said, yeah, I'll follow Jesus as long as it's an easy path. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus if your Christianity says I can just have Jesus and and that means I get this this wonderful street of gold and gates of pearl and a wonderful mansion to live in and the best food for all of eternity. Yes, sign me up for that. No more disease. Sign me up for that. And by the way, who doesn't want that? But those who genuinely follow after Jesus when the scorching sun, which is a reference to persecution, comes, they persevere to the very end. They don't turn back. They don't throw in the white towel. They don't give up. They continue marching forward. And that's the path of a Christian. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book titled The Cost of Discipleship. He said, quote, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. To follow Jesus means that we are to burn the bridges behind us. It's not a call to self-preservation. It's a call to being vulnerable and let the chips fall where they may. I am all in to following Christ. Second warning, verse 25, a warning of the deceitfulness of materialism. Notice what the text says there. The text is very clear in verse number 25. It says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In the parallel passages over in Mark chapter 8 and others, you can see what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Now ask yourself that question. Materialism is deceitful because it It causes us to think that life is easy. And then once we become intoxicated with materialism, that easy life causes us to continue to flow down that path where we just want that easy path, that easy path, that easy path. We want just to heap pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure upon ourselves. It cripples the mind. It dulls the senses. It blinds the eyes. It forfeits the soul. It damns the soul. And we see people like this all over the place, do we not? Do you remember, we're going to get there, Luke chapter 12, listen to this text in verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store A fool is a person who should have known better. A fool is someone who says yes to the world and no to Christ. The Bible calls that person a fool. Now, we should not run around just calling everyone a fool. In fact, I think that we should teach our children to not use the F word flippantly. However, the Bible says that if you squander your life, And chase after the world, rather than chasing after Christ, that you are a fool. And hell is filled with fools. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a warning. The third warning is a warning of fear of man and shame of Christ. This is a stern warning. Do you see what the text says in verse number 26? The text says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. It's not a good thing to be ashamed of Christ. Consider this word ashamed. It means to experience painful feeling or a sense of loss of status. We should not, we should not be ashamed of Christ. I love what Paul says in, in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the euangelion of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Many people in this very room are not ashamed of their favorite athlete or of your favorite football team. And you're not afraid to wear your favorite athlete's jersey to the Braves stadium and walk down the sidewalk and walk into the stadium and buy your $75 hamburger and Coke, and to sit down with your favorite player's name plastered on the back of your jersey. You're not ashamed of that individual. And some of you aren't ashamed of your football team, and the parking lot demonstrates it because you have your football team right now under the preaching of this sermon on the front of your vehicle. And some of you were passionately cheering your football team just yesterday. You're not ashamed of it. But now I ask you this question. Why is it that some of you in this very room are not ashamed of athletes and football teams, but you are indeed ashamed of Jesus Christ. Now you need to ask yourself that question. Can Acuna save you? Can the Braves save you? Can the Bulldogs save you? That was an opportunity for every Florida fan to say amen. And the answer is No. There is one who can. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he who would save his life would lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. Anyone who is ashamed of Christ, Christ will be ashamed of you. He will not receive you. We are not called to be undercover Christians. We are called to step out in front. We are called to to speak up and to speak out. Years ago, I received a, a call from a pastor in the community. Some of you have heard this story. The pastor said, hey, I've got a strange question for you. He said, there's a person that's come into the life of our church, gone through our membership process, needs to be baptized, but is deathly afraid of getting baptized in front of people. And has asked me to do a private baptism Now I know what you're going to say Before I even ask the question But I want to hear it come out of your mouth What do you think I should do And I said brother I said I would never baptize someone privately Because in the early church They didn't have Little brick buildings With white steeples And stained glass windows And comfortable pews And a climate controlled bathtub Where they could be baptized In white robes in front of people that loved them They were baptized out in the streets, near a public place, near a public watering source on the first day of the week when the majority of the rest of the community was back to work traveling up the road in and out of the marketplace and would see the church gathered there and would see them and mark them as a follower of Jesus. In other words, to be baptized in the first century was a dangerous thing. And some of you in this room who are not ashamed of Acuna or the Braves or the Bulldogs, but you're ashamed of Jesus, you need to repent of your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, cast yourself upon his mercy, and then take your place and follow him in the baptistry. And to say, without any shame, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of his gospel. That's what some of you need to do. Stephen Lawson once said it this way, In a counterfeit conversion, there is no death to self, no submission to the Lordship of Christ, no taking up a cross, no obedience in following Christ, no fruit of repentance, only empty words, shallow feelings, and barren religious activities. On the contrary, with a true conversion, sin is abhorred, the world renounced, pride crushed, self-surrendered, faith exercised, Christ seen as precious, and the cross embraced as one's only saving hope. And I ask you this question, what about you? How many of you in this room this morning are willing to say, I came here today not willing to follow Jesus, but I know right now I have sinned against Him, I deserve hell, and I want Christ. I want to follow after Him. How many of you in this room today would be willing to take a stand and say, I need Jesus humbly bowing in repentance and faith and follow after and chase after Christ? Or will you be ashamed of the only one, the only one who has the power to save you? You will learn in a few short breaths. You will know. You will know. Christ is king and that Christ saves some of you in this room aren't ashamed of DeSantis or Trump but you're ashamed of Jesus and hear this warning one of these days Jesus is going to be ashamed of you And that is one of the most sobering things that I could ever say in this pulpit. May it be said of you that you would be willing to burn bridges and count Jesus as worthy of anything that this world could throw at you. Because Christ is glorious. Christ is King. Christ saves any and all who shall call upon the name of the Lord. I ask you this question as we come to the close. And we'll pick up in verse 27 next week. Does this message from Jesus cause your heart to swell with joy as a Christian? And it should. And then I ask this question to the unbeliever. Why would you think that God owes you another sermon, another sunset, another invitation to come? May it be said that even now, under the hearing of the gospel, that you would throw yourself upon Christ, believing, having faith that he suffered and bled and died for you, and that he is your only hope and your only satisfaction in this world. And let it all be done for the praise of our eternal, glorious Savior. His name be praised. Amen. Let us pray.